Okay, first things first. Uh, I've been informed that you, some of you looked at uh, Cormac McCarthy's mm -hmm. Sunset Limited. We all got together and watched it on Sunday night. Okay, what'd you think? It was incredible. Yeah, we, we stayed for like, what, 30 minutes in our room afterwards. Mm -hmm. Talking about it, at least. And we only left because we had to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really amazing piece. And uh, the acting is superb. Yes. And like you, you told us the ending like before mm -hmm. we saw it, but it didn't make it any less troubling. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember him saying that. <laughs> uh, the the line of God, why did you? Um. Yeah, it's a it's a deeply disturbing play. If you wanted me to save him, why didn't you give me the words? Hmm. Is that okay? <laughs> That's how it ends, and uh, you know, uh, nobody understands evil. And uh, here's the deal I was talking about this in my last class, but um, the problem with the human condition is that, in this, in my view, is that it's like a Venn diagram with what's rational and what's good, and they don't perfectly overlap. Think of the murder of Astonax. You can reason your way into murdering a child, or or, or a hundred thousand children. Or leading the sunset limited. There we go. Right. All right. Uh, that's why Augustine has made such an important contribution. The idea that reason isn't enough. But as Kierkegaard implicitly points out, that could easily lead to craziness. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The problem is once you open that door, God knows what's coming through it. That's the one. And it's a, it's a sensible word. I realized the next day as I was thinking about the movie that that both of those individuals were like their respective cities. That Athens has destroyed itself and Jerusalem doesn't know how to save it. And love needs reason. Yeah. We did for the, proper deployment. The, he was, both of them were incomplete men. Yes. Uh, he didn't. The, well, Mr. White didn't have the words, and Mr. Black did have the words, but he didn't uh, didn't know what to do with them. Yeah. Well, again, uh, we can't completely separate reason and love, but the problem is it doesn't perfectly overlap, and the results of that can be very, very worrisome. We do. I mean, uh, I won't spoil the term, but wait until we get a chance to read at the end of the term, Blood Meridian. <laughs> yeah, have you read this already? Uh, I got, I wanted to, like, after we watched the movie, I went on a Cormac McCarthy kick and just started reading, like, oh everything. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting essay um, about, with the Santa Fe Project, about yes, the yeah. horrible forest of the, um, the benzene ring, and he's right. reflecting on, like, it was fascinating. Oh, he's um, a really smart guy, yeah. yeah. But um, one of the things that I liked about it, and I think this is, this is reflected in all of his work, is how he puts these sort of eternal debates into the American context. Yes. So in this one, you've got you know the, the presumably the son of slaves, a you know a black man from Louisiana, you know talking with this educated New Yorker, you know sort of like the product of an elite education, elite institutions, and mm -hmm. it was um, it, it was really interesting to sort of see that like interplay too, like the the soul food both as you know, the good things of the world, but also mm -hmm. literally, like soul food, you know, from 
like gumbo or something. Yeah. And so I, I love the sort of like the interplay of race and class. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, larger it's, like, eternal debate. It's many of the themes that we see in Dostoevsky put into an American context. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are many similarities, and you'll see that more when we do Blood Meridian. But I mean, if you can imagine overlapping uh, Blood Meridian, overlapping the Iliad with Moby Dick, <laughs> with uh, uh, Crime and Punishment. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, okay. And at, at the end, when um, Tommy Lee Jones' character has, like, essentially kind of won the argument, or he's left. Um, He's left um, Samuel Jackson speechless or whatever. I can't remember who it was, but someone related that to um, the story of the Grand Inquisitor where he couldn't answer him. When yeah, he, was in. he kept on trying to find words, and words weren't what yeah. he did. The closest moment that he came to saving him was with the soul food. Mm-hmm. And he didn't capitalize it on it because he thought that words were what the way he could win him back. <laughs> what do you want the guy to do? I mean, you know, he's a janitor. He's not a professional speaker, you know. Damn smart for a janitor. But well, I mean, uh, Carmen McCarthy takes care of his own, but uh, um, he's interested in the in the problem of evil and uh, our inability to solve it, and mm-hmm. even the difficulties in formulating it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's what uh, I, mean, I think he'll still be read now. Okay, they haven't made a movie of Blood Meridian for a reason. <laughs> no, they, it, it's been tried. They've, like they've actually done the rights to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a whole song. Yeah. You can't make this nightmarish enough. In other words, it's also like a tour through Dante's Inferno, except you're not going towards heaven. <sighs> I mean, it's it's terrifying. That's why I concluded it's still a mess with you. <laughs> also, it's important that we finish up the Western tradition with somebody that's alive. It's very important not to give the students the sense that everybody you can think is dead. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's why I like to finish with, with one or two living authors. But that being said, Aldous Huxley is not alive, but he messes with our mind. <laughs> All right. Uh, what do you think? Brilliant. It is brilliant. Brilliant tour de force. Yeah. I think towards the end of the book, I'll just it out now it was this line just hit me and I was like wow how do you answer that um, on page we all have the same copy basically so on page 228 I thought this is the biggest the biggest page in the whole book when Mustafa Mond is explaining things um, to all three of them and he says uh, towards the bottom he says what's the point of truth or beauty or knowledge when the Athrox bombs are popping all around you and I was like wow and that's and then he um, That's Hobbes's point. Yeah. yeah, and he's not wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you want peace? We'll give you peace. You want consumer goods? We'll give you consumer goods. You want not to be oppressed by the police? We can have that done by our mind control uh, apparatus. So you don't need a silver people here. Right? We don't have cops. Why? Because everybody's been hypnotized through hypnopedia, <laughs> sleep teaching, and uh, everybody accepts their status as natural. Yeah? In um, Dr. Coleman's class, we're talking about how the society's view of nature has changed. 
throughout the course of history, history specifically through the scientific, um, scientific revolution. And um, one of the quotes in the beginning of this book that I thought was um, interesting was when he's explaining how the babies are produced or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he says that what man has joined, nature, nature is powerless to put asunder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, like, and it's what God has joined. Like, no, yeah. Okay, hold <coughs> on for a second. Um, this is worth thinking about. Uh, my view, and I, I could be wrong, but I think that it's almost certain by the end of the century, give us another 80 years, exo-reproduction is going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And it's going to lead to all kinds of interesting situations and interesting new problems because morality is not just a set of rules, it's also a living tradition that you have to figure out you know, your way under new circumstances. Um, remember that much of human history has amounted to outsourcing things that go on inside your body. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, cooking is outsourcing digestion, starting digestion actually before you eat. It breaks down the food and actually allows you to uh, spend much less time and energy digesting because it's already pre-digested. It also turns out that we don't have uh, cellulose in our, cellulase in our gut, which means we can't eat grass like cows and horses can. But we can outsource digestion to them, have them digest the grass for us, and then put it into these packages of meat that actually move around, which is a great idea. So pastoralism, developing domesticated animals, is the outsourcing of digestion. Computers, calculators, abacuses is the outsourcing of thinking. Right. I mean, it would take you a long time to do calculations that your computer knocks out quickly. So what we've been doing is outsourcing from the body different capacities. Now, I think that the chances in the next 80 years of uh, essentially outsourcing the carrying of children to vessels, artificial wombs, I think that's really likely. Um, I mean, people will still have sex, but my guess is that people can afford it in 80 years. We'll actually go to the scientist, to the lab. They'll donate the sperm and egg, but you know, they'll tinker with it, and then they'll give you something that we don't have to carry. I think that's a virtual, virtual certainty. Now, again, before you get off, you know, exactly why is that evil? Right. You know, I mean, you got to explain it. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. the hardest part. It's, well, it's a complicated problem. You see what I'm saying? Um, Ethics is more than a set of rules, right? So simply conscientiously obeying rules is not sufficient because we all kind of have new problems coming up, all right? Think about it this way. Suppose we actually were to get these bottles where you could have children gestate. Um, this might solve the controversy over abortion because you would look at Roe versus Wade and say, what is this? Is this a right to kill the infant or is this a right, something roughly like uh, a landlord's right of eviction where you don't have to kill it. Now, if you don't have to kill it, then I don't know why us pro-lifers would necessarily have a problem with it. I mean, because don't we object to the killing of a life? Well, suppose it doesn't get killed. And then, you know, suppose they said, well, you know, suppose the pro-abortion says, well, okay, you know, as long as you doesn't carry it, we can live with that. You might actually find, you know, a way of working that out. See how complicated this gets, all right? I don't know the solution. As far as I can tell, nobody knows the solution. But this is likely to happen. Yeah, this is highly probable. All right. So, uh, yeah, this this is a prescient book in the sense that it identifies 
tendencies and issues and sees over the horizon where the problems are going to emerge. There's a saying, be careful what you ask for. Well, we ask for peace and prosperity, don't we? Well, suppose we've got it. <laughs> and got it forever. Mm. The way <coughs> of viewing this book is that the, the democratic spirit wants liberty and pleasure, mm. and they've chosen pleasure over liberty. You can't have both, so mm. one. Okay, that's true. Um, that they're in conflict, you can't have them both. So uh, mm. they'll choose pleasure. Okay, I can believe that. Uh, particularly if there's an intense, an intensity of pain, I can particularly see why you might choose that over liberty. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when we talked about this book in Western Civ, uh, we, we you made the point that there's, you know, for for us like educated, you know, very well Westerners, this this seems like a bit of a hellish, uh, dystopian right. existence. But for most of humanity, for most of human history. Um, this would be immeasurably better than what their lives have been. I mean, you know, you're, you're living maybe 40 years, you know, rape, death, murder. That's that's what's around you all the time. And so this is actually, you know, it, it's 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 a mark of our own like sort of privilege, I guess, that we can even say that this is how much we have the luxury of being above mere pleasure. Um, Eighty or ninety percent of our species does not. Look, you could have been born, all right. Uh, a street child in Nigeria, in which case the possibility of sex and drugs and uh, clean sheets and a, and a place to live actually might seem really attractive. And you may, we may point out, oh, you don't get your liberty. They may not be enjoying their liberty all that much. All right. Uh, there are 10,000, you know, uh, child junkies or child prostitutes living in Bangkok. All right. They may <laughs> say, look, give me this any day. And I don't know that they're wrong coming from that perspective, right? But Huxley is a well-known writer and intellectual, and uh, he read H.G. Wells's Modern Utopia, and Wells is a kind of scientific cheerleader. Every good thing is going to come from science, and if we just get more scientific, in other words, he's a leftover from the Enlightenment, essentially. What was the name of this book? Uh, a Modern Utopia. It's a Modern Utopia. Okay. No. What? Sorry. So, uh, Wells says, look, science is going to make everything great. You know, we won't have to work so hard. We can all chill. We can all live wonderful lives. But the problem is that if you're conscious while absorbing pleasures, Sooner or later, you're going to wonder, what's it all for? Why do I do this? Now, granted, this is a rich man's question. All right, street child may not have the luxury of asking that. But if you get born into this, particularly if you're an, if you're an alpha plus, mm-hmm. sooner or later, you're going to wonder, is, is this all there is? <coughs> Work and sex and so on. Indeed, this sounds like the Bay Area. <laughs> right? I've been spending time in California working sex and soma. That's what the, the place is. I mean, not, not just the Bay Area, but I mean, it's a big portion of America. Right? We work really hard to make a lot of money so that we can not do anything except drugs and other things that stimulate us, sex or whatever. Right? Question is, sooner or later, 
you've got to ask, what's this for, and why am I doing this? You can have that cure guardian problem. It turns out that pleasure, if you're at it long enough, becomes boring. Remember when Kierkegaard says, boredom is the root of all evil. Mm. Well, we got to make sure that nobody gets bored. So we're going to play, have them play obstacle golf, which is this very expensive apparatus. Why? Well, because you have to, our, our economy is so productive now that we have to make sure people consume enough to keep the system going. So we have to fly, have them fly around the world and see things that really aren't all that interesting. Apparently they have cable TV, so there's 300 channels, all of which show things like the semi-hemi-demi finals of the you know, World Judo Championship. In other words, the kind of mindless stuff that we have on TV all the time. Right? And uh, there's sex. And it doesn't get boring because you have sex all the time. And you're not allowed to ask the kind of question, why am I doing this? What does this amount to? Where does it all go? Yeah. I thought one of the things was really interesting um, because he sets up morality as like an inversion of what we typically talk about. Mm -hmm. There's a line where he says, with chastity comes passion. Yeah. There we go. Oh, yeah. Isn't that what Lucretius said? Mm. Isn't that what Epicurus said? You're only going to get yourself messed up if you get emotionally involved. A gram is better than a damn. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it doesn't matter what it's a gram of. It could be a gram of soma, it could be a gram of all kinds of white powers. All right? But there's a substantial portion of America that wants to numb themselves because they're not enjoying the consumer society and its intended freedom. <coughs> In other words, there's a wonderful essay, read it if you get the chance, called by Tolstoy. The essay is called, Why Do Men Stupefy Themselves? In other words, the Russian context, why do people not back a quart of vodka? <laughs> As Russians are, I mean, then and now, want to do. He asks the interesting question, why? Why does everyone, everybody want to turn into a vegetable? Why does everybody want to be less conscious? Is conscious, consciousness such a burden? And he says, yes, it is. Because if it's in a vacuum and you don't have some access to religious transcendence, consciousness turns on itself, becomes self-destructive. Yeah. So I'm presenting on this. I don't know when Good. you wanted me to talk. Go right up. Go right to that. Okay. Go right to work. Cool. So um, this book has a lot of Shakespeare oh, in yeah. it. <laughs> I've tabbed every single reference. There are 57. I won't mention every 57. Um, <laughs> um, but it was great. So, um, a little bit of background on Huxley. I know you mentioned he really liked H.G. Wells, inspired by his work. Um, and when he wrote uh, Brave New World, he was already a known author by this point. He was writing... Um, he wrote this in four months, uh, in 1931, when he was in France. Um, and it was during the period of depression in the U.K., which, um, so this is kind of inspired by that instability um, and the mass unemployment and the loss of gold currency standard. Um, and so it was great because when he visited America, he was thoroughly disgusted. Um, and so kind of put, as we were talking about, a lot of American culture into this book. Um, but with, um, there's a quote in here, I don't know where it is, um, 
uh, stability is is primal and the ultimate need, um, which I'll talk about a little later. Um, so anyway, so uh, the writing style itself is simply brilliant. Um, he from the get go he opens up and it's robotically repetitive throughout the entire book. Like he has the characters repeating these same phrases and not even just in their words but in their thoughts and the writing itself is like the same phrase like exactly the same phrases which is coming from the hypnopedic like teaching when they're sleeping and it's it's like his writing is almost the hypnopedic teaching style it's like very it's nice. really yeah. great it's, oh, it's so very nice um but also one of the other things i liked about his style is the completely bizarre but oddly very specific descriptions he gives of things that they have like the helicopters like they're never fully really explained what exactly they are but like and also the saxophones mm -hmm. and they're compared to like the caterwauling of cats and you don't have any idea what he's talking about but you have you know what he's talking about he just gives such bizarre but very specific descriptions he's living at the end of the jazz age and came to america mm -hmm. So when he's talking about the saxophones, what he's talking about is the sexual license associated with jazz, and that was a real thing. Yeah, dang. Right. So interesting. It was just very interesting how he has such bizarre descriptions. Like the Soma holidays, mm. like the lunar expedition. It's like, what is this? But you have, you know Think of the drug about. culture in America. It's not at all far-fetched. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but anyway, so it's just, I was obsessed with the way he writes. Um <clears throat> Anyway, there are a lot of amazing quotes in this book. But anyway, so I'm going to get on to the actual presentation. Um, so the main theme that I was looking at for this um, was the idea of freedom. In this book, it's a huge question that doesn't actually really get questioned until really when John comes in. Um, I mean, Bernard questions it in a sort of like melancholic Hamlet-esque sort of sense, but he never acts on it. Right. Also, I've categorized every character in a Shakespeare character, but it's relevant. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he's like, so he thinks about it, but he doesn't, it's just in a in a sense of himself and what's important to him, he questions freedom, but he doesn't question it on a global societal scale. To Even any... though he's an alpha plus, mm -hmm. and a little on the short side for an alpha plus. Um, he doesn't have the intellectual tradition which would allow him to ask those questions. Mm, yeah, that was great. Um, so it was interesting to see him try to ask, but fall short, obviously. That is exactly why we read the tradition, because <laughs> nobody's smart enough to do this again on their own. Uh, one of the ironies here is that this is the end of history. Think of Hegel. Mm -hmm. God wow. help us, this is where it stops. Oh, yeah, I thought it was Mr. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. It's uh, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Uh, anyway, sorry. So, um, so it's the big thing in here, um, for the most part, it's uh, liberty as a question. It's considered as freedom to mm -hmm. do what you want. Um, right. It's a freedom question, but it's not really like everybody's happy doing whatever they want and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody or upset society but it's not really actually free in the end john has this quote he's like he says what does he say he says i'll teach you i'll make you be free whether you want to or not because he's that's stolen from rousseau you know he's oh. in the social contract he's going to say he says that people are going to be forced to be free mm-hmm because he that's where that comes from yeah, because he's recognizing that they're not actually free, and well, they're all free to 
uh, act on the basis of their feelings uh, at the same time in the same way with the same feelings. Mm -hmm. And it's not it's not an autonomous freedom is is John's point. I think it's they're not like free of themselves. They're just I mean they're indoctrinated into this idea of what is freedom. But he's got all of these things. Freedom is the like, ability to gratify our desires. Yeah. That's the, what the consumer society holds freedom to be. Liberty versus license. That's right. Mm -hmm. Liberty versus autonomy. Two different accounts of mm -hmm. what freedom is. One is English and the other one is German. Yes. German <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, um, so going on the point of indoctrination into this idea of freedom, there's this great line I was talking to Fiona the other day when we were reading it. Uh, Lenina's and Bernard are talking after they have sex, and she's saying, oh, I don't understand what's going on. And this line, it goes, she's, she said with decision, determined to preserve her incomprehension intact. Yes. And it's just so insane that they just are determined to preserve what they know, which is natural, but it's just so unnatural in their, like, complete embrace of, I mean, ignorance is bliss in some sense, for, at least for these people. Um, but so it was interesting. We were talking about... Um, making people free and like the idea of what is actually free but in this society people are a fuel for the freedom it's not it's we see that even though everybody is happy nobody's given a choice of whether they want to be happy like that's just all it is and they they literally are fuel in like more ways than one um, because there's this one part where they're flying in the helicopter and he's, uh, they're talking about the people are burning the bodies of people who have died, which is a great scientific feat for energy <laughs> consumption. Like, it's wonderful. Why waste anything? Right. But it's like, for them, it's they're literally the fuel of the society. Like, not just with their work, because this entire society is built on a regime um, that requires the sacrifice of those who haven't been chosen and it's like he talks about in the end Mustafa Mond he talks about the um, optimum society is modeled on the iceberg eight ninths below the waterline one ninth above so he's talking about how you literally have to have subservient people in order for any society like this to flourish Plato. yeah oh, really scary. Um, and it was it was it's interesting because it's built on the working classes and it would literally topple if they rebelled. Like, if we had a revolution, the society would but, fall. But, again, Plato, the working classes are being given back everything they could conceivably consume. So if they were to rebel, they'd be creating a regime in which they get back less. Mm -hmm. And since they live in order to consume stuff, that would clearly be irrational, mm -hmm. which is the way Plato's republic is organized. Right. That's, that's why he says you can't have that many alphas. You can't just build a society of alphas at the yeah. end. Yeah. It was really interesting because they... Put 200 they, of them on Crete and they start a civil war. 200 different sides. <laughs> but it was interesting because they're... He's talking... Like Plato was talking about they are... They want to choose what's pleasure. These people, they've been crafted so they'll choose pleasure and that happiness. Um, How much crafting and what does that take since people naturally seem to be inclined towards uh, pleasure? Well, I mean, it goes through the entire science in the beginning, which is an enormous, careful amount. So they've amount. taken a, na a natural human inclination and intensified it to the maximum. Yeah, <clears throat> so right? And at the same time, deprive people of the ability, in practice, to choose anything mm -hmm. else. 
if it's possible to deprive people of the capacity to choose, did they ever have a capacity to choose? Hmm. But they still do, because some of the characters question it, and they try to change Like Helmholtz. Okay, so it's the smart ones that do, mm -hmm. but that's what's going to get them sent to an island with other <laughs> Right, you can't upset the apple car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was like... Um, uh, where was I? Okay, so yeah, so we were talking about the only there's only a few smart people that understand kind of what's going on, and they're carted off to an island. But interestingly, <laughs> to, we'll see Mustafa Mon later. Great character. Um, he's chosen, but it's interesting because I'll skip to it. But anyway, so he's chosen pleasure, but he's chosen a life of servitude because he's, he's sacrificing himself. Yeah, which is the Christian tradition for the well-being of mankind. Mm -hmm. See, he's taken from them the weight of deciding things. It's a pain being human. <laughs> so he, who is a scientist and did not want to rule, has been selected out and told that he's obligated to rule. He's the philosopher king. Mm -hmm. wow. And so what does he do? He reads the Bible and other bad stuff, saying, look, if I have to have pain, I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to have pain, I'm going to enjoy it. Work that through. Suffer the children. Well, uh, not that kind of suffer, God willing. Um, you know? Oh, yeah, just really quickly with Mustafa Mond. Um, it's, it's also interesting that he sort of becomes a, he's like a technocratic liberal, you know, mm -hmm. like, like, but he's like the apotheosis of that. Like he is the, the most powerful, the most. There are 12 of them. Right. Right. And they run the world. And there's no more countries, so there's no more war. Nobody fights about anything. I mean, there's the developed world, and there's the poor world. In the poor world, they have all kinds of weird syncretism between Indian religions and Christianity, you know, all kinds of strange stuff going on in Mexico. But they don't matter, all right? Mustafa Mond is running the first world for first worlders. And he went through the proper democratic procedures, so at least the people who preceded him did, and he found out what people want. They want sex. They want soma. They also like not to work, but they tried that and it just made the soma consumption go up, didn't it? Mm -hmm. But the point is, we now have a technologically sophisticated society that is so productive that there's essentially no limit on consumption or very little in the way of limits. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna need golden people like Mustafa Mond because they gotta make sure that everything runs right. And when people get a little too smart, like that guy that wrote that excellent biology book, he said, no, you're going to some island with a bunch of other smart people that aren't happy, uh, where you can actually live like a human being. All right? And then there's society itself, they're in layers and hierarchy because of the jobs they do, but they're all essentially the same. They're consumers and pleasure absorbers. Right. This is what Epicurus told us we all want. It, the world has been turned into a giant pleasure garden. Little pleasures all the time. Mm -hmm. A gram is better than a dam. So we have sex and we do drugs. Which is the nightlife in any major American city. I mean, I'm a New Yorker, but you can find that anywhere. <laughs> right? Well, suppose we just generalize that. So we universalize that in a Kantian way. <laughs> That would be perverse. So what we're doing is universalizing the maxim of absolute heteronomy. Yeah. That's a messed up idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyways, so going off of kind of the whole drugs and sex mm -hmm. and heteronomy idea, it's 
in the end, this idea of happiness is, he has this great quote, um, John, near the end. He talks about, um, he's, what does he say? Oh, here. Um, he says, it's poison to the soul as well as body. And he's not just talking about Soma in that aspect, because he's talking about this view of happiness. That it eventually just kind of twists on everything, and it, it turns back on you. And when you take happiness or this utilitarian idea of happiness, it just kind of turns back on itself and bites you in the tail. And it's just, it becomes this, like, non-lethal poison, and it just, it just takes over your entire body until there's, like, literally just this husk that remains that doesn't know what the alternative is because it has just been so consumed by what is that there's no ought anymore. It's absolute heteronomy. Yeah. Um, and so it's, and it's just what even is happiness at that point because there's no sadness to compare with that. And if, if you just keep stretching further and further from anything normal, it's in some sort of, like perverted attempt to remove happiness it just it I mean it goes too far (coughs) and he says um John's talking to Mon at the very end and Mon is like well if you want this you're claiming sickness and sadness and pain and grief and like whatever and John he says I claim it all and it's just it was such a good moment Mm -hmm. and um and it's because you're welcome yeah and then he says like again let me Speak up for our friend Mustafa, Mr. Mond. Um, it's easy to say, you know, I can embrace the pain, I can embrace the horror. Um, particularly if you're a lucky American university student. But suppose you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, you really want to embrace the horror of, say, uh, I don't know, street kids in Johannesburg. You know? but that's that's the irony is that John is a savage, mm-hmm. and he has that that life that the, the the kids in Bangkok would have but he still chooses that life in the end anyway even though he's been introduced to the good the good life my guess is this is not as bad as that in other words he's not abused he's not ill-treated he actually gets a copy of Shakespeare he's one of the lucky ones right particularly because his mother comes from the civilized world uh, granted she's a pariah because the, her sex sex life is not like anybody else's there but uh, John is not doing so bad, and he's not in a great deal of pain. There are people that can be a great deal worse off, but what he wants is something that's not numbness. I think what John, what Mr. Savage sees in this brave new world is the fact that none of you people are alive or conscious. They're, they're overstimulated to the point where they're numb. They don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he I, I would disagree because I think he's even worse off than the other kids that there because remember they all go out into the mountain and he's the one that's by himself that's right he is isolated that's true that's and he point. does have complete aloneness in, even in that even in the worst he's in the savage reservation and he's alone it doesn't get any worse than that okay and it's that isolation that <clears throat> creates individuality mm-hmm. all right that allows you to pull away from social influences and mm-hmm. become your own master so yeah uh there's a, there's a strange, ironic liberation that he gets moving from Mexico to the first world, 
The problem is that what he's liberated into is complete control by the government of everybody's, not just their actions, but of all their emotional life. So, uh, in some ways, it, we go back to the journey motif. Mr. Savage is on a journey, too. He's looking to find some satisfactory kind of life that gives us what's advantageous in the savage life, but also possibly offers us the benefits of the non-savage life. Problem is he can't find a way to make it work. He can't. He's got no power. That that's the solution to the Tower of Babel, right? Is to break it up. It's a really crafty symbol of it, but uh, that's the Tower of Babel, right? In what in what sense? Uh, in that the, the heaven on earth, your, mm -hmm. your first world of pleasure and all these things, is the Tower of Babel, and I guess John decides that it's better to to have the division of languages or to have pain and to have <coughs> disharmony uh, than to have that. If pleasure is not the good, I'll get you in a second. If pleasure is not the good, um, what's good about pain? That you know what pleasure is. Uh -huh. Okay. Well, suppose I give you one pain then, and then you have something to carry around with you when you experience your pleasures. You want some more? <laughs> this is my problem with Mr. Savage is that he sees pleasure gone amok, gone amok and then decides, well, pain is better than this. He wouldn't be the only one. He'd be the medieval flagellants. You know, I, I, I see the merit of what he's saying, but I think that's a false alternative. Mm -hmm. I think Plato was much more on the money when he says there are higher pleasures than the bestial mm -hmm. pleasures. Right. Well, he's seen pleasure from uh, J.P. Two's wording a little bit, he, he says effectively, and I think of pleasure and pain as incidental to doing what's good. Sometimes you'll experience pleasure, and sometimes you'll experience pain. Okay. You think you can sell that to a democratic political regime? Uh, I Get your share of pain here? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, good luck running on that, pro on that program is the difficulty. Yeah? I think what John Paul was saying is right. He, he's, not, he's not seeing... <clears throat> The high arts, like he was talking about, like mm -hmm. they got, he said, we got rid of the high arts. Mm -hmm. There used to be this thing called the high arts, and they got rid of that. And that's where I think the best pleasures would lie in. Whereas he's seeing just the physical pleasure, and he's saying that's too much. He's getting the two extremes. He's getting flagellants and then the, and then the complete pleasurable society. He doesn't see. But remember, we've tested it. We know empirically we need deltas and gammas. All right, and there's no point in teaching that pleasure does not compute. So they're not, they don't have access to those pleasures. So you want them to have sex all the time? I assume you do. Or at least in this regime you would. But uh, then how different are the alphas really? I mean, yeah, they push symbols around a little better, but they're not fundamentally anything other than me. Here I think Plato was fundamentally wrong, although he probably couldn't have known that he was wrong, in that when Nietzsche is perversely right when he says that Platon, that Christianity is Platonism for the masses. Plato <coughs> never thought there could be such a thing as Platonism for everyone. That's right. But there is, it is in fact possible when with someone, when someone like Jesus appears on the scene, to convince a staggering number of people, not never everyone, mm -hmm. never even probably the majority of people, but far more people than Plato thought possible can be convinced that virtue is the good life. 
when you have Jesus on the scene. But what it's also going to mean that virtue is not going to be knowledge anymore. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. So, I mean, I would agree with you there. The argument that I'm making in the book I'm writing, it's a history of the world, um, is uh, that there are four monotheisms, not three, and that they're all, and that actually what we have is Judaism, which is monotheism for lawyers. So if you've seen how legalistic it is, it's this elaborate set of rules, and that rules about the rules is amazing and complex. There's Christianity, which is. Uh, Monotheism for the dispossessed and the wretched of the earth, which the Romans are really good at producing. <laughs> and uh, then there's Islam, which is streamlined warrior monotheism. <laughs> so you just get right to the point, which is joining the army. <laughs> well, no, I mean, the Shahada, I mean, that's the Islamic creed, and this is boiled, and this is, this is minimalist. There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. You are now a Muslim. Get on horseback. <laughs> that's all you got to do. Right? It's, it's warrior monotheism. I think Platonism is an attempt to create a rational monotheism. I think that, that the form of the good is Yahweh without a personality. So he doesn't get angry or jealous or do any of that stupid stuff that Yahweh does, at least in terms of the anthropomorphic qualities. Right? In other words, the form of the good would never say, I'm jealous of something. It doesn't care. It's just sitting there gooding. <laughs> doing whatever it is. The form Which of the incidentally good. is why there were Jewish Christian and Islamic Platonists. Of course, no doubt. Um, all the monotheisms had to deal with this, all right? And they, had, they did so with different degrees of success. But my argument is that Platonism is an attempt to create a rational monotheism. In other words, he's a prophet as much as he is a philosopher or a poet. Yeah, so to what extent is um, like the modern Western world created by philosophers, pilgrims, and exiles, and then the new world is sort of, like, like this, this world that he cooks up is an attempt to sort of get away from it, because most people are not philosophers, pilgrims, or exiles. Right, and so what you do for them is you give them consumer goods. Right? That's what stabilizes advanced capitalist societies, which is why when you have an economic downturn, the regime is in trouble and in danger because what legitimizes both the American regime, for example, and the Chinese regime is the fact that they're creating economic growth and making people rich. They don't do that, they're not legitimate. So it's actually very dangerous. Trump gave his state of the union as one of his first lines, our economy is amazing. Okay, if we weren't running a trillion dollar deficit, I would agree with you. <laughs> You get to pay that back, but with interest in 20 years. <laughs> we're spending that. That's, that's what's going on there. Otherwise, it would be called theft, because we're spending your money. All right, no, welcome to America. Right? We're borrowing money that you get to pay back. You don't like that. And we're living, we're living large on it, yeah. I just wanted to ask if there was more you wanted to say. <laughs> I'm like halfway done. Good. Please Is it cool keep if I keep going? going? Okay, Please sorry. So, um, anyways. Um, Kind of going backwards to the idea of um, like fun and happiness because you we were talking about like pleasure and the and what you get from it. Um, but so this idea of happiness is no longer happiness, rather, but it's fun and it's just fun. And it's because Bernard has a line in here after they after he sleeps with Elena and she's like, "Well, wasn't it fun?" And he says, "It was the greatest fun." And it's just that like there's nothing more like all fun can be is fun and there's no meaning there's no moral there's no
purpose anymore. It's just kind it's of... An end, no, it is a purpose. It's an end in itself. It's not a means towards anything. Right. Yeah. It's just kind of... It exists. And it's... Um, it's so... All the Anglo-American philosophers have been telling you this. Mm-hmm. Right? That whole tradition is about maximizing pleasure. And pleasure is the good. And that has mm-hmm. a very long and actually quite serious history. All right? We all say we want peace. Well, they have it. Mm-hmm. We all say we want prosperity and plenty. They have it. Um, the question is, what do we want peace and prosperity for? And apparently the answer is so we can have more peace and prosperity. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Huxley, in this idea, he's saying that he, through John, he thinks humans need that imperfection to make a balance. Um, because if we try to find perfection, as Alexander was talking about, we we make ourselves into a god, and we have the Tower of Babel. And um, it's so it culminates throughout the book in this question of like the balance and imperfection, and whether you need it, and why do you need it, and how. And it culminates. It's like these final four chapters um, when they're talking to Mustafa Mond about like religion. Um, and it seems as though these last books are almost the purpose of the book. Like he's finally, it's his DSERA, maybe. Um, like the greatest thing that he can say to us is in these last four chapters through the discussion between um, like Helmholtz and Bernard and John and Mond. Um, and it's religion and humanity versus utilitarianism and fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and He's arguing, so John here is arguing for like a classic humanity and morality, which I find funny that he got that from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> but it's, he's talking about why, what's the point of living if we can't have risk, like trials and struggles, and if goodness is the only thing that you have, is it actually good and virtuous anymore? Because there's nothing that makes it so. It's only the thing is only itself because there's something that's not like itself. Okay. It, it, it's Plato's non-vacuous contrast. Right? Mm-hmm. have something to compare to. Everything implies its opposite. Exactly. And it's almost Aristotelian sort of in this, we're looking for John's kind of trying to find, he's at one extreme and Mond, Mond the society's at another extreme <clears throat> and they're trying to find the... I'm not convinced that the golden mean is going to work here. I don't know they can step to the middle and shake hands. Either pleasure is the point of life or it isn't. It seems like Huxley is saying that like there there is no reconciling mm-hmm. these two traditions. Because mm-hmm. John, he even says, he's like, I want pain, I want mm-hmm. sin, I want all these things. Mm-hmm. I want sin, yeah. And he tries to convince them. Like, you know, he throws this home out the window. But there's no change in the society. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the society changes him, you're not reconciling these things. Mm-hmm. You're just morphing them into mm-hmm. each other. Society, or at least the rich part of the world, has turned into something like a giant coral reef where each of the human beings there has the individuality and significance of one of those little animals that lives in the the reef. They're all identical. And all they do there is sift water and have the happiness characteristic of those little animals. I think there's a (laughs) crustacean or mollusk, I don't know (laughs) what they are, but here's the deal. One of the problems they have here is that they're not able to formulate the possibility of having some good thing that isn't good for mollusks. Mm -hmm. In other words, there are some goods that possibly might be accessible to human beings 
that are inaccessible to mollusks. Also, suppose mollusks were to live to be 500 years old and to sit there absorbing the seawater and doing whatever mollusk thing they do to enjoy themselves. Um, I'm not sure that 500 years of mollusk pleasure is the equivalent or even analogous to 50 years of human pleasure because human beings can have pleasures like reading Shakespeare right, that mollusks can have. Mm -hmm. And I begin to say they're qualitatively superior. But also, unlike mollusks, human beings can also choose sometimes not to, to choose pleasure for some other reason. And it's when we do that that we exercise our autonomous freedom. Mm -hmm. I thought I'd let you go back to Kant there. He <laughs> talks about the catacomb comparative. He mentions it in the beginning. Oh, where does he? Oh, right, right. The catacomb yeah. comparative is not pleasure. Mm -hmm. Or it's um, it's he talks about it page twenty six. Um, the talking about that he's schooling the alphas. Um, they were alphas, of course, but even alphas have been well conditioned. Silence, silence. All of the air of the fourteenth floor was sibilant. The categorical imperative. Oh, right, silence is a categorical. Yeah. Like perfect subjection That's is the category of comparison. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> also, that word sibilance is really important. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like sibilance, too. I mean, sibilance <clears throat> is a word that instantiates itself yeah. because it's so sibilant. <laughs> <It's a sibilant. laughs> it is. It, it corkscrews around. It's, mm -hmm. it's being sibilant. Uh, this is actually um, one of the big turning points in the novel when we have these this disjuncture that can't be reconciled. There is, there is, this is, in other words, what it comes to is guardian either or. I mean, we've, we studied that last term, right? Uh, we know that sooner or later, you're not going to be able to split the difference, right? And you're going to have to say yes or no. And this is where Anglo-American philosophy goes. In other words, the entire Anglo-American tradition from Hobbes on if you are consistent with it, it's going to create an ideal society like that. Okay. And this is a criticism of that entire tradition. In other words, Hume's sentimental ethics has political implications, and those political implications are that there. Mm -hmm. This is also a parody of Plato's Republic. Here's why. People are intrinsically unequal. We've got to acknowledge that, because also you can't run society. But we're going to give everybody all right, as much return on their labor as we possibly can. It's going to be minimally exploitive. Now, one of the ways in which we're going to be minimally exploitive is we're going to develop mind control techniques derived from advertising. That's what Huxley saw in America. He said, whoa, this is amazing and powerful. All right, mind control techniques that mean that people don't break the law anymore. So we don't need silver people to enforce it. We can get rid of that whole class. Mm. Because now we're doing it through technology. So now all we have is gold, who are actually free and know what's going on. They're the ones who are loading the dice and telling the noble lies and all that jazz. And there's everybody else who live a bovine existence, grazing like cows. And that's what their life is. Satisfied pigs. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Would the savages be the bronze, or would that be someone who's outside? The savages society? are completely outside. They're, they're the ones outside of civilization altogether. The right. They're, they're the barbarians, literally. Mm -hmm. They're the ones you steal the land from to build the city. 
That's right. If you need if you need any land, but actually we don't even need that because since we don't have population increase because it's completely controlled, we don't need to expand. Mm-hmm. Right. So we don't need to have wars or or military because there's nobody to fight. Yeah. Just a quick point on that. It's he seems to be also be talking to Keynes a little bit here yes. with um, the, the the sort of like they don't grow like they they don't expand, but yet their economy is sort of it's a perfectly calibrated economy. To That's grow. right. Yeah. It's designed to maximize output, but also maximize throughput, maximize destruction. So you get single-use things, and then you make more of them. And so you, you make sure that the that production and consumption completely balance out. And because technology allows for mass production, or Ford, he's going to save us through consumption. Uh, what that means is, is now we can satisfy everybody's desires. We can't give them the desire for anything that's not physical pleasure. We can't give them mental pleasure or emotional pleasure. That would be destabilizing and dangerous. Sorry, um, okay. did you want me to go on? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so, so we're talking about, so John had the idea of classic humanity um, and morality. And then John, not John, Mond returns with, he's just, he wants to create a society where you don't, need anything like that like you just because it's not like it's it's not useful like in a sort of like textile sense yeah and he says he has a wonderful line he says in a properly organized society like ours nobody has any opportunities for being noble or heroic conditions have got to be thoroughly unstable before the occasion can arise and he's just, he wants to eliminate every possible variable. Why? Because other, if, because if you don't, if there are variables, then everything is unstable, and stability is the greatest good. Okay, well certainly we want stability. We want to abolish history. Mm-hmm. And that of course goes back to Plato's Republic too. Mm-hmm. The whole tradition of Western political philosophy is an attempt to abolish history until we get to Hegel, in which case everything changes. But everybody else says, look, Plato says, look, once I get the good society up and running, don't change anything. No more history for you. Uh, What Plato's trying to do is satisfy everyone's desires. And so we have two classes we have the gold and we have the bronze. And even the smart people are bronze. Mm -hmm. We got a few up there who treat the people beneath them, essentially like cattle. They're like, they're benevolent despots. Said, look, what makes you happy is a bovine existence, so I'm going to give you lots of grass. You get all unruly if I give you books, so I'm not giving you that. Yeah. And that's evident when when um, Bernard Marx begs at his knees Mm -hmm. Mustafa Man to stay in society, and he's on his knees begging him, don't send me away. That's right. That's right. He's not. He's ill-equipped to go out there, right? None of these people are tough. None of these people have developed uh, virtuous qualities which you would need in response to difficulties, right? So these people with very soft hands are going to be given heavy labor, hard thing for them to do. Right? Here's the deal. They're all atomized individuals. We have no families. We have no religions, except the orgy-porgy religion, right? <laughs> uh, we have 
no countries, we have no ideologies, um, we have nothing worth suffering for. In other words, I'm a parent, so I know many parents, or any parent that's any good, are willing to sacrifice and suffer for their children. You'd be surprised if parents are willing to, especially your parents did for you, right? You don't appreciate it this, at this age, but 10 years from now, you will, all right? Um, having children gives us something worth sacrificing for. Having a family, having a religion, having an ideology, those things all have to be stripped away because if there's anything worth sacrificing for, then pleasure isn't the good. In which case, this is a dystopia. They even make it so that life isn't something worth sacrificing for. There we go, right. Everybody's gotten uh, conditioned to having the best toys when they were kids in the hospital for dying people. So nobody's scared of it. Nobody even thinks about it. So you don't have any worries about your own mortality. You, everybody gets sick like clockwork at about 60 because you're too old. And then they just load you with silver and you die and nobody worries about it, no anxiety. This is the result of Hume's sentimental ethics. He says, what's good is what's useful and agreeable to ourselves and others. Brave New World provides everybody with useful, agreeable stuff, except Mr. Savage because he doesn't find being agreeable agreeable. He finds things that are disagreeable agreeable because he hasn't been trained properly. Yeah. I think this is crazy, I just thought of this, that the salvation of all of these humans ha is in the hands of Mustafa Mahan because they are not ever intentionally choosing the right or the wrong. They're essentially like cattle just acting. So if you look at the question of salvation, will, would they be saved? Well, they're never really intentionally choosing anything. They're just acting. So It's like asking if coral reefs are safe. Right. So it's they all in the hands of Mond, essentially. Well, Maybe. how about this? Mustafa Mond is sacrificing his own happiness for the happiness of the human race. See, he didn't want to be, like, because this is from Plato, he didn't want to rule, become a world controller. He was a, a very good scientist that got nominated, and then you, you more or less get dragooned into it. He didn't want to do that. This, again, this is from Plato. The rulers, the good ones, don't want to rule. They want to keep on doing science on some island. But they got him to, they got him to sacrifice himself for the good of humanity. In other words, he's a Christian figure. He's a Jesus figure. Yeah, let the children suffer. That's right. Or suffer the children to come to me. Well, that means allow. <laughs> don't, 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 yeah. I allow, I mean, it just means allow. That's right, that's right. So everyone else is only partially human, human in a limited sense, human in the sense that they consume human pleasures. But no one makes human decisions. No one is really living a human life. This is a less than human life. What it means is, is that the Anglo-American tradition is deeply mistaken about the nature, about human nature and the nature of human happiness. It's not that pleasure is a bad thing intrinsically, it's that it's not the only good thing. And yet, to explain exactly what painful things are good for people and how, well, I want to start with say two things. What good is having to do things? I mean, Mustafa Mahan said, 
What's good about that? You feel redeemed now? Mm -hmm. Well, we think we should get rid of two things. What do you think? And of course, then he's going to say, well, let me, in, in the place of two things, let me put every possible pain, and then just let me know which ones you like and why, because that's really perverse. Can you universalize the maximum you say, like getting your toes stepped on? No. <laughs> so, I mean, again, let me speak up on behalf of this Anglo-American tradition. Uh, when you get specific, uh, you may want to say, well, pleasure isn't the good. I agree with you. And pain isn't intrinsically evil. I agree with you there. But it doesn't make me think that pleasure is intrinsically bad and I should shun it. Nor does it mean that I should look around and find out how much pain I can get. But this still leaves me uncertain. Which of these pains are the ones that are good for me? Maybe, for example, I don't know, uh, the death of one of my children would make me really deep. I don't care. I don't want anything to happen to my child. Right, yeah, maybe, maybe I get all kinds of deep insights for that. Maybe it would be, in some sense, good for me. I don't care. I'm not, who's being rational here now? I mean, things have gotten very muddy. So you say that the pursuit of pleasure is not good enough? Fine. What is good enough? Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. That's right. <laughs> all we need. <laughs> um, so, so I'm going to yeah. talk a little bit about stability, and then I'll finish. Okay. Um, but anyway, so stability. He talked about um, good, happiness as the highest good is what's preached. Um, but um, he has a line in here where he talks about. Stability, stability as the like the primal good, like it's necessary. So it feels like as though they may preach that happiness is the greatest good. Stability for them is intrinsically necessary. It may be a precondition to happiness. Nobody enjoys mm -hmm. revolution. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's he talks about individuals being unstable and able to undermine the society so they get rid of the individual like the individual does not exist anymore um and it's great um there's one of the hypnopatic mantras that they repeat all the time is um if one person feels the community reels so it's just great to see like a the individualistic idea of humanity as bad and not um, desirable because of what it can do to a society um, and while they reach they well, it's like practical precedent would require stability to be the most important thing um, and every single mantra that I can remember um, is geared towards the keeping of stability in the society and the people like ending is better than mending um, because to mend something would be to create an empathy with it because it's important to you like not necessarily just clothing but mending some mending something that's broken like a relationship or like your cat is sick um you should get rid of everything and get something new because new is better but it's like if you also there's a need to sustain consumption. Mm -hmm. You have to keep up with the productive process. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, like we were saying earlier, Graham is better than a dam, and, like, everyone belongs to everyone else. Like, they're all totally centered on keeping that, like, euphoric sense of happiness mm-hmm. in the world, which keeps everybody in line and subservient, which is how the society runs. Um, because But they're keeping them in line and subservient for their own good. Exactly. But they don't know any better like they it's when they know any better they revolt and then mm-hmm. no one's able to absorb pleasure they voluntarily chose to return mm-hmm. okay you want to voluntarily choose less pleasure no no, no they voluntarily chose the, the, the people who uh, did the, the alphas who did the alphas mm-hmm. yeah so it was just it was interesting to see that Mond chose less pleasure then um, as somebody who understands what's going on, because they don't seem to care that it's propaganda, because they talk a lot about it. It's like, oh yeah, propaganda, whatever. Like, but they don't. It's not a bad thing. Is he choosing less pleasure though? Is Mon choosing less? He's an alpha who gets mm-hmm. to have whatever girl he wants and do whatever he wants. Yeah, but he, he wanted the pleasures of the intellectual life and being uh, around interesting people uh, to have conversations. Uh, yeah. Than, he says than, um, um, near the end. Yeah, he says, I almost envy you. Um, and then they're like well come with us and he's like no I've chosen this life so it's really interesting I mean for him it's less pleasure for himself but more pleasure like the greater good it's the Kierkegaardian either or Mm -hmm. yeah the aesthetic man or the ethical man Mm -hmm. or the uh, mollusk or the human being (laughs) he has an interesting line about individuality and independence and everything and he says he says somewhere um oh independence was not made for man that it is an unnatural state will do not will do for a while but will not carry us on safely to the end um so in a sense he's he's saying that in order to have a lasting society you need a hive mind um which I guess you, there is an argument to be made for that, seeing as how every great Eagles civilization has failed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it's just get this other page. Yes, I did. Okay, so to finish, he's talking about this entire book is amazing. But anyway, so it's I this inevitable end. I think is eventually self destruction because there's no way to have perfection because there's always going to be outliers and if you send enough of them to an island they're gonna start thinking more and more and maybe revolt um and through perfection through this pursuit of perfection you are always going to fail humans can never be perfect even like something science created they hold them up as like like alpha double pluses are like the greatest thing that science can create but they re- they revolt still like they have their own ideas which is have made them dangerous and they're talking about when they're talking about the society created by alphas they're they're talking about how like the great power comes great responsibility or whatever which is why alphas need to be like so carefully monitored but through the pursuit of perfection i think they're going to fail because of like the tower of babel um and I think it ends perfectly with John's suicide. Mm-hmm. I think it's a wonderful finish to the book. Um, it's like the last act of autonomy almost. 
it's two extremes. And stuff. Mm -hmm. he, he's joining the dead because he regards all the people around him as dead. Mm -hmm. They're all numb. They don't have any real internal life. They yeah. don't love. They don't hate. Mm -hmm. They have weak and very limited emotions. Mm -hmm. Their conception of human life is consuming and consuming and consuming. And let's face it, this is the utopia of the Anglo-American tradition. What stabilizes advanced capitalist societies is the cult of mm -hmm. consumption. Right? We give you new things every year. Mm -hmm. You know, they could be microwave ovens or iPhone 11s or whatever. And you'll actually get taught, look, the 16th of an inch bezel, it's been taken away. This is going to be life-changing. No, it's not. It's just a blasted phone. It's not life-changing. It's a phone. No, I better get my $1,200 out. I mean, that bezel is bothering me. These are the things we spend our time thinking about. All right? And, uh, yeah, as T.S. Eliot says, it, four quartets distracted from distraction by distraction. It's a great line. Mm -hmm. So this is a world organized around distracting from people, mm -hmm. people from any significant inquiry into the human condition. Yeah, and he's, it seems as though they've been driven to this, or he literally says they've been driven to this through the removal of art. Um, art gets people excited. Yeah, and he, it's like art is necessary for the human condition, so they've got to remove it. Um, because the human condition is instable and like there's sadness there so we don't want it so he says that's so Mond is talking to John at the end and he says that's the price we have to pay for stability you've got to choose between happiness and what people mm -hmm. used to call high art we've sacrificed the high art and we have the feelies and the scent organ instead mm -hmm. the feelies are a great development in pornography we have mm -hmm. the internet yeah right and no, there's a tremendous demand for viewing people having sex. Mm -hmm. And if you put your hands in, actually feel it. Well, I mean, if they could figure out how to do that with virtual reality, you know, they would have already. Mm -hmm. And they'll still got working on it now. It's just not happened. Right, yeah, well, no, you know, no doubt. In I mean, China. You know, this, who knows what, what VR is going to look like, but yeah, we may actually get the feelies. Mm -hmm. Right? Or, I mean, you know, how, how weird does it get? Uh, you know, you, uh, Pornography with no people in it, mm -hmm. right? With just computer-generated images. Well, yeah. okay, I'm sure that that's going to exact a toll. Mm -hmm. You know, I just don't know from whom. Or <coughs> yeah. It's progress for progress' sake. There's mm -hmm. no thinking about it. Well, the problem is, who do we want to put in charge of deciding what progress happens? See, philosopher kings are in short supply. <laughs> so who do we get instead? Scientists. Scientists said that's been tried already. That's what Comte, C-O-M-T-E, wanted to do. Um, is there any reason to believe that understanding physics uh, endows people with superior powers of moral discernment? I can't think of any. I mean, this is the last gasp of Platonism. Probably scientists will not around this reference. No. The scientists I know are really introverted and kind of talk to each other and kind of squirrely. I wouldn't put them in charge or anything. No, if you have a, an IQ of 150, you don't belong in politics. You belong in the lab. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. It's true. What you want for politicians is about 115, 120. You don't want them stupid. But you don't want them too smart. If you get them too smart, they start giving orders to everybody because they're the smartest guy in the room. You can't have that. That's what happened with somebody like Woodrow Wilson or John Adams. They really were smart. And the problem is they couldn't delegate anything. They were terrible presidents. Mm -hmm. You know, give me a guy who says, you take care of that, you take care of that, you take care of that, report back to me. what Trump does now? I mean. Oh, don't, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't vote for the Democrat or, or the Republican. I don't know where this is going to lead me. It should not have happened. So back to what you're saying about the abolition of art. <laughs> he just starts looking like a nice alternative. Right? <laughs> we love this. Yeah, and that's just. Does it all day? Philosophizing with a hammer? Like, bang! Yeah. The thing is, the John's no, not. Paul has killed it. Than he is to almost anyone else. He, he doesn't really care that much about God. A lot more like Satan and Daedalus. He wants art, art, art. Right, because that's going to lend some meaning to his life. Uh huh. Yeah. There's this, okay, so I promise this is the end. But so the thing with Mond that's killing me is that he knows what's going on. Yeah. And he recognizes that there is something better about the human condition because uh, he has a line in here that I don't think I bookmarked. It's in the thing. Well, he has, he's talking about the, um, where he says there is something better. Um, I can't remember where it is. He's saying... Mm, I'll find it for you. Thank you. Um, he's, uh, so he's talking about in this passage, I'm finding he might find it. Um, he says, Actual happiness always looks pretty squalid in comparison with the overcompensations for misery. And of course, stability isn't nearly so spectacular <laughs> as instability. And being contented has nothing of the glamour of a good fight against a misfortune, none of the picturesqueness of a struggle with temptation or a fatal overthrow by passion or doubt. Happiness is never grand. And it's, but he's talking earlier on in this section, I think, he's saying that it's, it, there is something necessary about, oh, it's when he's talking about the biological study. And he says that there is, something necessary to um like telos and truth and stuff mm -hmm. and he's saying we can't let them talk about oh yeah yeah here it is the purpose of life was not the maintenance of well-being the purpose of life was not the maintenance of well-being but some intensification and refining page 177 uh intensification and refining of consciousness some enlargement of knowledge which was the controller effective quite possibly true mm, and it's yeah, just that, that killed me yeah, so yeah. he knows, and the fact is there are other people that know, and yet it's just, for the greater good, they've destroyed This is a good. perverted Christian impulse. He's sacrificing his own mm -hmm. good and the good that might be achieved by a few for the greater good. Yeah. You know, because most people can't get access to that greater good. But, like, in this, like, pursuit of the greater good, they've almost destroyed what is actually good until it's, like, devolved into this, like... What is what is actually good? Well, they're talking about in John's conception of like humanity mm -hmm. and like what's necessary for the human condition, like an enlargement of knowledge, like Mond was talking about, or just simply being able to feel things. Um, but they've boiled it down to something very chemical and very simplistic and very easy to control, which is the whole point. This is the end of the line of materialism and, mm -hmm. and reductive naturalism. 
this is the conception of human nature that's built into it, and every conception of human nature is a disguised theory of education, also a disguised theory of ethics, which always entails a disguised theory of politics. So the point then is this, the Anglo-American tradition rests its case. In the middle of the 20th century, somebody says, this is where we go. You want this? Some people do, and some people would, and under the certain circumstances, I can understand why they might. All right. This is Hobbes' conception of a good world. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Right. He's not asking so much. He doesn't want his head cut off. You know, if he gets to go to the Feelys and drink and have soma, that's great. But you know, he just wants security, stability. He says, "I lived through uh, exciting political times. I'd rather not." Mm -hmm. And he's right about that. So, uh, if this, if there's something wrong with this, then there's something wrong with the entire Anglo-American tradition, with that tradition of reductive naturalism, <coughs> materialism. Mm -hmm. But here's the deal. If you want to get beyond or outside that reductive naturalism, all right, um, you're going to have to explain how and why. All right? In other words, um, if you want to go beyond reason, right, which is what a Christian has to do, right, there's a real danger that you'll end up going beneath reason. You try to be more than reasonable, you may well end up less. So, if this is wrong, fair enough. What's right? A world with more pain? Apparently so. Well, what sort of pain and distributed how? You, you prefer instability? Well, you know that instability is going to get out of hand, which means that your own regime will collapse. Mm -hmm. So ask yourself if you really want instability. Because you only want that if you're incapable of creating a good regime. Mm -hmm. yeah. There was one really interesting point. I did not expect this when he was when the um, Mustafa Mahmoud was talking about the works that they've gotten rid of, like the Bible and mm -hmm. the and all that stuff. And he mentions the imitation of Christ. Mm, yeah. And I was like, wow, how he is probably seeing that as that's the extreme on that end. We want to go as far away from that as possible. That's right. And I, I thought that was surprising that he put that in there. And Mustafa Mahmoud is a connoisseur of all his books. Mm -hmm. He says, look, I'm sacrificing myself, but it has its compensations. Mm -hmm. I get to live like a human being. Mm -hmm. Granted, it's painful because I know the reality of what's happening. I, I know my own death is impending. I, I haven't been hypnotized the way everybody else has. Um, but he's a philosopher king. He's ruling because he was chosen, not because he wants to. He's sacrificing his own happiness for the happiness of everybody else. It's a perverse kind of Christianity. It's interesting, in that same passage, um, John, uh, he's talking about God doesn't change, and Mon replies, men do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's just... If this is wrong, what do we have to add to make it right? Mm -hmm. Think carefully about that. I mean, none of you seem satisfied with this. Fair enough. You know, what you want. I just wanted to say, I think I would add Huxley, along with Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, as one of the great psychologist authors, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he's so insightful about humanity and the way he asks these questions. That's Yeah. In other words, suppose we got, well, you know, there's a saying, 
Um, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> we said, I'm going to look at the Anglo-American edition, check out what Mill, for example, has been wishing for. What's that going to look like? And he said, well, it's going to involve sex and drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> right, essentially. You know, uh, Dionysus, but controlled Dionysus. So you get the right amount every day. Dionysus. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's in some ways industrial strength Dionysus. <laughs> <laughs> no, have you ever been to up to uh, Orlando to the theme parks? Mm -hmm. I find them awful. I mean, the only one that I like is SeaWorld, but when you go to, uh, well, no, at least it has living things. <laughs> um, but you go to, uh, to uh, Disney World, and it's literally, it's industrial fun. I mean, this vast number of people are taken at one time. Um, Mass-produced fun actually turns out not to be all that interesting. It, it gets old real quickly, unless you're three. <laughs> yeah, for adults, if you find it fun, then you know, there's a problem. Yeah, yeah just anecdotally, um, I, I knew this kid from my high school who was obsessed with Disney. You know, yeah. you, you know, they go like you know three times a summer or something like that, and it was the strangest thing to see someone like just so invested in that. Like like that for them became their their family, their community. And like it reminds me like the world state's motto is community identity stability. That's what replaces, you know, family God or family church and what is it? Uh, yeah, family country, country religion. That's and so right. it's it's a it's a really interesting like the state becomes your community. Yeah. Family. This is the world turned into Disneyland. Oof. And of course you can't have art there. Imagine Oedipus in Disneyland. Hmm? No. He's just doesn't belong. You know, he's just standing on the ride with no eyes. Mm. Right. <laughs> trying to get to. Come oh, on, Oedipus and Disneyland. There's a problem there. Right. He doesn't belong there. There's something really wrong with this. Just, you know, it's Disneyland is a dystopia. It's all too real, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I worry about the fact that, you know, Disney controls something like 40% of all the like, movies and like, mm -hmm. TV shows that are made today. And, like, you know, that, that's the stuff that makes all the money now. Yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't say any of that's great art. Probably true. Yes. You said that you classified all the characters by Hamlet, by uh, Shakespeare characters. Would you like sharing? Go ahead. Okay. So I mean, mostly just the main characters. Uh -huh. um, uh, so Mond was really weird, but so they don't obviously fit perfectly. Mm -hmm. Like human beings aren't the same. So who would you choose for Mond? Prospero. That's right, exactly right. Yeah. That's just what I was thinking, mm -hmm. exactly right. Uh, cool. <laughs> Check one. Um, so, and I was thinking Bernard is a, he's almost a Hamlet, but he's not, he doesn't have the, the knowledge of a Hamlet, he just has the melancholy. And he thinks too much. Which is weird in a, opposition to Hamlet who thinks already too much mm -hmm. so I mean Bernard just thinks way too much um, and it's interesting because he thinks totally in a intellect in, in an inner sense um, I mean Hamlet does as well but it's just interesting to see where it leads them whereas Hamlet he kind of goes crazy and kills his friend um, and but Bernard ends up begging at the feet of Mon to stay, which is an interesting parallel to see the lack of knowledge where you end up versus where Hamlet is. I mean, he's gone to school. Yeah, yeah it's, so that was, that's my theory on Bernard. Um, Lenina is Miranda. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, granted, most of the society would be a Miranda-esque. Like, they don't know what's going on with the outside world, and they're like, what is oh, this? Exactly. That quote, I actually counted the different quotes. <laughs> I have every single quote in here. Uh, Tempest wins with nine quotes. That's Hamlet, good yeah. <laughs> Hamlet has eight, and then Othello has five. Um, and then there's a bunch of other ones. Um, and, and who's uh, Mr. Simon? He, so we're talking about this journey motif, right? But he kind of, he's Caliban-esque when we first meet him because he's completely, when we first meet him. And he's talking about like, and he almost, okay, okay. He's like, where did I write it? There's, he's like Ferdinand and... Um, oh, it's after this. He's He has moments where he... Oh, Edgar from yes. Lear. Yeah, so, but he almost has... So he starts out as, like, the savage character, and he, but he's, like, more like an Edgar. But then towards the end, he becomes more Caliban-like. Now God stand up for bastards. Yeah, or that's Edmund. I know. Yeah, he, and they quote Edmund in the end, because they're talking about the wheel has come full circle, and I am here, and they're trying to... Oh, he's um, the bad brother. The bastard. Life. Who's only concerned with pleasure? Yeah, taking taking the position of uh, his brother Edgar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the they're talking about Gloucester. Right, and they talk about Gloucester, and well, they mention Lear a few times, obviously. Um, so yeah, so he's Edgar, um, mm-hmm. but he has a a re not a reversion, but he becomes very Caliban towards the end as he slowly like once the death of his mother, yeah. it just kind of breaks him right. and he just he has goes. no human connection anymore. Exactly. Helmholtz. He's I love Helmholtz. Um he's like Horatio. He's kind of a solid like he has a head on his shoulders and it's great to see the dynamic between Helmholtz and Bernard because there's a part in here that I don't think I tabbed um where they're talking and Bernard is like crowing about his triumph with the controller and he's like sending him off to an island and Helmholtz is ashamed of Bernard and his passion and he's like why I mean he doesn't say anything he just sits there and thinks so he's he's a Horatio to Bernard's yeah. Hamlet um, and in the end it, it I guess he saves him there are more things on heaven and earth Horatio than are dreamt of that, that line is quoted like three times yes <laughs> yeah. All right, here's the deal. Come back ready to talk about, um, first of all, this as a guide to contemporary politics mm. or the politics of pleasure, right, which have been radicalized at this point. It's the only good thing that some elements of our society understand. Mm-hmm. Um, libido is everything that becomes kind of sacred. And uh, also, um, if this is a defective society, what do we need to remedy the defects? Mm. How about a good war? <laughs> Famine or uh, you know, some kind of pestilence? Um, you can speak up on behalf of war and famine and pestilence if you want. And then if you don't want, then I want to know what exactly is wrong with this, since they don't have those things. All right. Is there an upside to pain? Pointless, gratuitous pain? Yours or other people's? <laughs> well, usually other people's, not so much mine. <laughs> uh, 
something worth thinking about there. It's one thing to tell me it's wrong. Uh, what I'd like you to do is tell me what's right. See you Thursday. One quick question. Fiona and I are, well, I can ask next class. It's okay. about, I was, uh, Fiona and I were going to London to separate matter, but I was going well, to for you, man. Yeah. In spring break. Great. That's wonderful. That's a big part of education. Yeah. That's so good. I'm so happy to hear that. People don't travel enough. That's very, very good. I was wondering if there's anything physical, um, Huxley. Anything. Not that I can think of, okay. but um, you do want to go to the National Portrait Gallery on the mm. top floor. You see that portrait of Hobbes, which is so famous. Just the face and the hand. Everything else is dark. <laughs> it's an amazing uh, portrait. It's one of the best. What was it, the National Portrait The National Portrait Gallery. Okay. Um, did B.F. Skinner ever read this? Oh, uh, sure he did. But it's the same sort of reductive scientism leads you to abolish depth psychology. You gotta travel the behavior. person. Well, if you go to the travel scientific, you abolish the mind. Or is it behavior? Go to Holland. See you on Thursday. You did a great job, Rick. Thank you. You did really well. One or two of you, and everyone wants to